We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and we want to get to this. It's a vital part of what we do together. And so as we do, let me just tell you, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to go through the whole chapter. We broke into it last week. We're going to cover the whole thing this week. I encourage you to turn your Bible there so that we can uh, read, and you can follow along as we work through the passage. Let me set it up before we read it, and we'll pray in just a, a moment around it. The second section of Ecclesiastes is set before us a sovereign God, a God who is in control of all the times and seasons. He holds it all. He determines what times and seasons we both get to experience and enjoy and, and experience and endure, although we're even called to rejoice in those. He's the one who sovereignly holds them. And it showed us in, in this second section, really beginning in chapter 3, that, that God was doing it for his purpose. He has a sovereign purpose in it to make all things beautiful in their time and to lead us to fear him or revere him. The, the idea, the implication, I guess, if you will, is that if he doesn't work sovereignly through all times and all seasons that we experience, in some way we will not be as beautiful as he intends us to be we will not fear him rightly as he intends us to fear him. And then last week, we turned to the heart of the issue. We got really personal. No longer is anything that's external to us. No longer anything that's outside of us. It really is that the core of our issue is our sin. Our sin has separated us from God. Our sin has made him distant to us. In fact, as we studied last week, we saw that, that there is a time and season, as there is for everything else, there is a time and season that we will be judged. That our sin has set us up against him. Our sin has caused us to deny him as our creator, cursed us to, to a life apart from him. Our, our sin has, has caused us to not be beautiful in his sight. We are fallen short of the glory of God is what the scripture teaches us. But as we'll see today, our sin hasn't finished its work in separating us from him. Now don't, don't misunderstand. I mean, that's enough, right? That's like, that's, it's plenty. But our sin isn't just felt in our relationship with God. It's It's not finished when it sets us apart from him and and establishes us under his curse and, and, and makes us the object of his judgment. Our sin also separates us from each other. These are Solomon's observations. This is what he's seeing as he looks with wisdom around the world. And you don't have to take my word for it because that's exactly what he's discussing. That's exactly what he's presenting. As he writes, let's read it, Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 16. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill work, in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool holds his hands and eats his own, or the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. 
one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Just consider that for just a second. We're not going to deal with this part of the passage deeply, but just consider that. Most of us would be, aspire to be the king who sits in a castle to get to do things our way and tell people what to do rather than how to do it. And Solomon's saying it's better to be a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who's isolated. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. And I think the main point that Solomon makes in this chapter, if we could sum it up in just a few words, is that there's strength in numbers. There's strength in numbers. There's, a, there's strength that comes from being together. And it seems to me that this is common knowledge. It seems to me that we could probably poll everybody here and it, we, we could reasonably agree that it's better to be together than alone. I mean, we come up with sayings to try, try to qualify this or try to express this, like strength in numbers. That's not the first time you heard those words together, because we all tend to agree. I came across this week, as I was preparing for this message, what is said to be a Swedish proverb. I didn't know that the Swedish people came up with proverbs, and I wasn't even really able to get to the source, so I don't know that it's truly Swedish, but this possibly Swedish proverb uh, goes like this. Shared joy is double joy, and shared sorrow is half sorrow. It emphasizes the benefits of relationships. If, if this is truly Swedish, which it may very well be, someone came up with it. But if it's truly Swedish, I mean, it's obviously an international perspective that, that we appreciate relationship, that we appreciate the, the strength that comes from being together. It's share, when, when we come to someone and we share joyous news, they celebrate with us. Our, our joy is increased and we get to celebrate together. It's always more fun to have a party together than apart, right? And to throw your own party on a Saturday night all by yourself, that just seems really sad. But to be able to tell somebody about the party and have them join in the party, man, there's a rejoicing that goes on. And then when something bad happens, and to be able to go to a person and say, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe what has happened, would you just be with me? To have somebody walk with you through the, through the desert, to walk with you in the day that you're in the valley, to have a friend stand by you, to, to, to pick up that load and carry it with you, to bear your burden. This is a blessing. We understand. We, we get it. I thought, how insightful. I mean, this isn't a Christian perspective. This isn't, a, this isn't some lesson taught out of the Bible. This is just potentially Swedish people looking around at their world and saying, 
this, is, this seems to be true. And then I continued thinking about it. And I couldn't quit thinking about it. I started to think about that in terms of the world we live in today. In the age of social media, in 24-7 news cycles that are more concerned with ratings than just simply reporting current events, it seems to break down pretty quickly. I don't even like, I don't even like getting on. I don't even like paying attention to this stuff right now. I feel like in some way I have to, to be able to speak to it and bring gospel perspective to it. But but I'd suggest that, that probably there are plenty of people, e- even people in this room, who have sought to go to celebrate and seeking others to celebrate with them and have been ridiculed and condemned instead. That you know what it is to rejoice and have people tell you how horrible you are for rejoicing. I- I'm pretty certain there's probably people in this room who have reached out, who have sought to reach out and find someone to share in their sorrow, to pick up their burden and carry it with them, only to be kicked while they're down. So the more I thought about this possibly Swedish proverb that seems at first glance to be very insightful, very helpful and encouraging, I, I realized just how great how great it would be if this always proved true. I, I realized inside of myself how much I wish it were always true. I, I want it to be true. I think we together want it to be true. We wish this were always true. I, I, I realize that there are times that we get glimpses of it. I realize that there are times that, that this is really true for us. But I also realized how far we are from it always being true. In the world that Solomon described, in the world that is wrecked with sin, that has been separated from its God and isolated from each other, this is not often, not always going to be the case. The same sin that separates us from God isolates us from each other, increasing the the futility of this life under the sun. I would just call your attention to the reality that we read six of these verses last week and had them connected to the passage that precedes it as reasons for why God is judging us. This is not the first time we'll talk about the oppression of chapter 4. It's not the first time that we'll talk about the the envy of chapter 4. We saw that in relation last week. We saw that in relationship to the reality that we are separated from God. pushed us to the reality that we are fighting in this futile world simply because we are disconnected. Our relationship with him is broken. But there is a reality that the same sin that separates us from him isolates us from each other. And whether we realize it or not, much of the futility, much of the frustration, just the lack of, of movement forward is the reality that we are separate from him, but also each other. Sin isolates us from each other. Solomon points to two ways in which, and I think these are core things, I think that they encompass bigger pictures, and I think we could put things inside of each category and, and see specifics and details out of it, but he shows us two ways that sin isolates us from each other. First, he shows us that oppression isolates the oppressed. And go back to verse 3, 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. 
On the other side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive, but better than both, as he who has not yet been. And he has not seen the evil deeds that are done unto the Son. We were created by God's design to rule and subdue the earth, to exercise power in this world, to have authority and to use it. You can push all the way back into Genesis and you can see this in his purpose for the man and the woman. And now in this sin-riddled world, this world that is so deeply entrenched in its sin, we use that power against each other. And even if we don't have more power than someone else, we seek to leverage whatever little power. I mean, we got phrases like sticking it to the man, right? An employee who doesn't think he's being paid enough, determining, well, I'm just going to reduce the amount of my productivity because I can stick it to the man. Exercise what little power he might have against someone else. Solomon's looking and he's saying, this is horrific. It's in results are the lives of the oppressed, these lives of oppressed people who are hurting and they're crying out. This is horrible. It's so bad that it's better to die and be out from underneath of it. It's so bad that it's better to have never been born. Notice the isolation that he calls out. The oppressed are oppressed by their oppressor. They had no one. You see the absence of relationship. They had no one to comfort them. No one to comfort They're all alone. Even if they're surrounded by people, they're all alone. You ever, you ever, you ever been surrounded by people and felt all alone because no one seemed to know fully your problem. No one was able to really serve or help or remove the pain of your problem. I don't know, maybe you haven't. You know who has? A man named Job. If you're familiar with this story, Job suffered a, a heavy series of blows all in one day. He basically lost everything in his life except his wife and his health. That was all I was left with. Wife and health. He lost his children. He lost his livestock. He lost his riches. He became a poor man who was healthy and still had his wife. That's all. And then just a little while later, a few days later, Satan is allowed to come and take his health too. His wife steps out. I, can pick, I don't know why I picture this this way in my head, but his wife steps out on the porch and is like, curse God and die. Like She throws the screen door open of their double wide that they're now. Nah, it's probably a single wide because they're poor. They've they got not much. And, and she throws open the screen door and just curse God and die as he's sitting out there rotting and his flesh is covered with sores. He's probably thinking, why didn't you take her instead of my health? Right. And, and, and then... He has these friends, and, and, and make sure you see my quotes, friends show up, who begin to heap salt in his wounds with accusations of his guilt and saying, well, you must have done something. You've got to deserve this. It's all your fault. You've done something to anger God, and now he's out to get you. 
It's no surprise that in chapter 16, verse 2, he looks at them and says, you are miserable comforters. Because even though he's surrounded with people, he has no one to comfort him. It's no surprise that twice on two occasions in this book of Job, we hear him wish that he had never been born. Job chapter 3, verse 11. Job chapter 10, verse 18. This is the man, it seems. This is the story of the man who's oppressed, who says it had been better if I'd had never been born. Surrounded by people, but all alone, isolated by sin. Not his own sin. Their sin also. Oppression isolates us. Oppression isolates the oppressed. But Solomon keeps going in verses 4 through 8. We see that envy isolates the envious. We are are created to enjoy. I mean, again, go back to Genesis. We're created to enjoy and thrive in the abundance. When God created the man and, and, and woman, he gave them everything. He withheld one thing from them. And it wasn't even a plot of land. It wasn't even something big. It's not like he said, you can't go on that mountain. Like the Rockies are off limits to you. He didn't withhold anything big. He withheld one little tree. Seemingly inconsequential, seemingly insignificant in the whole realm of his creation. We were created to enjoy it all. And now in a world riddled with sin, we just can't seem to get enough. Completely dissatisfied. We always want more. Solomon pushes it further than just this desire to be satisfied, though. His point is that even when things look like we're doing them for good reason, our envy is driving us for self self-satisfaction, for selfish reason. This isn't just, hey, well, you're never satisfied. Even the noble things you do is his point. Even the noble things you do are not noble because they are a desire to promote yourself over everyone else. Even the things that we pretend are noble is what he's saying. is They're not noble because of the motives by which we do them. Let that sink in for a minute. Why is it that we want to be known as a good employee? Why do we seek to be promoted and get ahead at work? Why is it that we long to be parents? Why is it that that we long to be good parents? Is it possible, is it possible that even these noble things we desire, we're still using them for selfish means? And he illustrates the point. He goes on to illustrate the point in verses 7 and 8 with a man whose life has been given to accumulating who can't be satisfied. And look at how he says it. He, he, he said, <clears throat> I can't read with my stinking glasses on. I'm not satisfied about that. I'll just tell you the truth. It drives me crazy. Look what he says. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks. He never slows down to ask, who am I doing this for? 
I don't care about anybody else. I, I just need more. He's never satisfied, so he keeps on fighting. He keeps on calling. He keeps on seeking to fill his life with stuff, and he couldn't care less if he's around anyone because he's so consumed and so focused on gaining stuff. He's filled with this consumeristic attitude that i got to have more, and oh, wait, that didn't satisfy me. i got to have more, so that he never slows down and thinks, I'm all alone. How sad is that? It's interesting to me that when Solomon brings this out, when Solomon draws it out, he doesn't draw it out and saying, he never asks, what do I have to gain to be satisfied? He doesn't doesn't say he's never going to ask what it is that would satisfy. He draws out the reality that he's all alone and couldn't care less. He never slows down to think that he's lost his sense of purpose, that he has no sense of identity, that he has no, no, no true sense of self because he's all alone in the world and living in such a way that he was never intended to live. This is futility, Solomon says. This isolation that comes from envy is, is futility. And, and the sad thing is, is that this man isn't just isolated from everyone else. The people that could stand around him are isolated from him because of his desire for everything but them. See, there's always a two-way street. There's no one who truly lives in a world alone. Every person who has ever lived has had some relationship. You have to, because you can't be here without a parent, right? Even if you didn't have a brother or a son, you still had parents. And, and the reality is, is that this isolation has driven him to be all alone. But not only is he alone, but people are without him. Solomon says this is horrific. You see how he illustrates it. He shows us a proverb. You push it back up in uh, uh, verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after a win. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That's verse 5. Better is a handful of quietness and two hands full of toil and a striving and a striving after the wind. Sorry. The fool sits down and he's just struck with laziness. I just don't want to do anything. So he closes up his hands. He sits down and now it's self-destructive. He begins to eat his own flesh. He's destroying himself. But then there's this guy who's out there with both hands just scraping and clawing at everything he can accumulate, trying to fill up his hands, trying to stuff it all down in his pockets, trying to fill his life and just consume everything he can, and he can't be satisfied. Solomon says it's better to to be the guy who sits here with one hand full. It's quiet talking about contentment, being being satisfied with what you have. This this is not a statement against hard work. Don't don't misunderstand. This guy didn't accumulate what's in his hand simply by by, by sitting there. Certainly there's the the gifts that come from God, but even that, he calls us to get up and do something. Calls us to go out and work. He created us to go out and do a job. But this guy gets what's, he's satisfied, he's content. And then he has a hand free. He's able to reach out and touch someone. He's he's able to hold a hand and walk in the midst of difficulty. He's able to offer assistance and help when necessary. 
He's able to just walk in hand in hand through life. This is the same sin. The this, this sin that separates us from God is, is separating us and forcing us into isolation. And it robs us of, of all the benefits that God intended for us. This is what's happening in this man's life. This is what's happening in the life of the oppressed. Instead of being able to enjoy relationship, they're not comforted by those who could comfort them, nor are they loved by those who oppress them. The envious person is so given to the accumulation of wealth that he can't see fit to even consider anyone else. So they're missing out on the love that comes from him. And he's missing out on the love and the benefit and the blessing that comes from them. It robs us of these benefits. But Solomon's like, it's better, it's better. If there's two of us instead of one of us, the benefits of community are better than the futility of isolation. This is, again, we go back to where we started. Everyone knows this. This is not some, this shouldn't be some earth-shattering reality. It's a, a, strength in numbers. Shared joy is double joy. Shared sorrow is half sorrow. The world comes up with these things because they recognize the reality of it. There really is strength in numbers. One truly is the loneliest number. In this example, Solomon shows us it's better to be zero than one. It's better to be dead and gone than still to be one here. It's better to have never been than to have been born because of the great evil that's done under the sun. It begins that way. But then he shows us that if you're going to have to be one, it's better to be two. If you were born, which I'm assuming every one of you were because here you are, it's better than to be two than one. And he shows us four examples. And the first one he, he highlights, the first one he points to, two are better one, than one. This is verse 9, two are better one, than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Work smarter, not harder, right? You heard that. Well, we typically think, oh, I'm supposed to get a machine and do the work for me so that I can just kind of sit back and let the machine do all the work. But what he points out is that, hey, when two people work together, they can complement one another. Now, I was a, I was a production manager. I, I watched over the flow of production in an aircraft maintenance hangar. It was my responsibility to ensure that I was getting every ounce of work from our employees as, as possible so that we could move things forward and meet deadlines and budgets and things like that. And what I found was that when you put two people together, that they're often more likely to sit down and talk than they are to work better together. It's just the reality of it. But what his point is, is that if two people will really get together and do work, they can do more in less time. And if you can do more in less time, you can produce more in less time, you can earn more, your reward will be greater quicker. So in 12 hours, I can produce 24 hours worth of work if two people will do it together. That's the first thing is just basic math. Yeah. Two are better than one, except when they're lazy and they'd rather sit down and talk. I've fallen and you can help me get up. Like you've, you've heard it, right? A person falls down and they have nobody to, to help them. The commercials, right, with the elderly person that's laying on the ground and she pushes the button. Imagine if she didn't have the button to push. Imagine if she had no one to help her up. I'm sorry, I know it's a horrible picture, but it's the one. So what he's saying He's probably connecting it to the travel in, the, in these places in dark and you fall into a pit and you hang on. 
we don't walk around in the dark much anymore, right? I mean, it's not like we fall into pits on a regular basis and need somebody to pull us out. But we do see commercials where elderly people fall down, and if they didn't have the button, they might not have someone be able to help them get up. How horrible would it be? I've fallen. You can help me up. Two is better than one. How about comfort on a cold night? How's one person going to stay warm by themselves? Now, a lot of people want to try to make this about marriage. I don't think, it's not that I think that doesn't apply in marriage as well, but I don't think it's limited to that. It would have been common in that day that as you traveled at night, it's better to lay down under a cloak with another person and share some body heat than to be in the middle of a, a, a desert place in the middle of the night and get really cold. If you've been in the desert, you know that it's really hot in the daytime, but then as the night comes and the sky is clear, all of that heat comes off of the sand really quickly. It gets really cold. I think the coldest I've ever been in my life was in Korea. I spent about a year and, I don't know, just over a year there as, a, as my first duty station in the Army. And we were trained in basic training. We learned to, to be able to take care of one another in this way so that if you got, you're out in the cold and to, to share body heat. So if someone was, was suffering from hypothermia, then one of the things we, we would do is, is lay them down in a sleeping bag and, and take their clothes off. I mean, they're still in underwear and stuff like that, but you take their clothes off, you lay them in your sleeping bag, and then you take your clothes off and you lay in the sleeping bag and you zip yourself up and the shared body heat begins to warm them naturally. I was on guard duty in Korea, one of the coldest times of my whole life. I was a strangely thing, strange thing. I was hotter in Korea than I'd ever been in my life, and I was colder in Korea than I'd ever been in my life. I don't, I don't suggest going to Korea. I just, <clears throat> that's probably a throwing. I shouldn't have said that. But I was, I was assigned guard duty. It was the middle of the night. It was cold. I mean, it was, it was so cold outside. Our heaters in our tents weren't working very well. And the person, the soldier that was waking me up for guard duty comes in hobbling because their feet, his feet were so cold on the verge of frostbite. We had been trained. Well, what do you do? You take their shoes off and you put their feet in your armpits. I'm going to tell you that's cold. But his feet, he didn't suffer frostbite. He was able to warm his feet mildly, gently into a place where, where he no longer felt the cold and he was out of risk. That's what he's saying. Two is better than one. We provide comfort on a cold night. And I've got your back. You've got mine. Imagine. I mean, come on. You've been in a part of the city or, or some place where you've felt unsafe. Don't you always feel safer if there's someone with you? I've never been mugged. I mean, I, I thought, well, I could make up a story about being mugged and make it sound really good, but I've never been mugged. I've never been faced with anything like that. But, but I mean, if someone came to me and robbed me, I would certainly feel better about having someone with me. If nothing else, you know, <laughs> sorry, I could run faster maybe than they could and I could leave them. That's not helpful. Two is better than one. Because when you stand together, you can support one another. I've got your back, you've got mine. But what's interesting about that, as he, he lists out those four things, and, and some people try to allegorize them and make them super spiritual. I don't, I don't think that's the right way to deal with them. I don't think that's his perspective. Remember, he's looking at everything under the sun. I don't think he's drawing for us illustrations. I think he's giving us practical reasons why it's clearly evident that two is better than one. But... When he comes to the end of these illustrations, he doesn't say two is better than one, does he? 
In verse 12, he comes to this place, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And so he's just told you how two is better than one. And then he says, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. In fact, better than two, or better than one is two, and better than two is three. You see, what I think he's demonstrating to us is that we don't just need another. We don't just need one more person to make it okay. We need a community of people. We need to be woven together, a braided togetherness, a, a reality that our lives interwoven together are strengthened. You see, I think the intent is, I mean, what we would do if this, oh, just two is better than one, then I'd get married and we'd just go off and isolate ourselves as two people. You say, no, 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 you need a community. Zero is better than one. But if you are one, it's better to be two. And if you are two, it's better to be three. You strengthen numbers. We get this. Again, this is not something that's particularly Christian. It's, it's very practical. It's very easy to perceive. It's very easy to even see that when it goes wrong, it goes really wrong. But if we aren't careful, if we aren't careful, since we can see that the whole world can see this, we can see that the whole world can agree on this, if we aren't careful, we'll assume that the whole world can be fixed by some practical little saying. Like shared joy is double joy. Shared sorrow is half sorrow. When in truth, the only solution to the answer Jesus Christ, or the only solution to the problem is Jesus Christ. Listen, the same sin that separates us from God is the same sin that's isolating us from each other. We don't need another solution. It is Him. He is it. One of the commentaries I, I use as I study, have been studying Ecclesiastes points out this, this phrase, comfort and contentment are antidotes for oppression and envy. And yes, I agree with that statement so long as comfort and contentment are founded in Christ. The reality, the sad truth is, is that we run around seeking to provide comfort for problems and, and never Christ. How have we helped have we truly benefited and blessed someone if we provide them comfort and never tell them about Christ? Have we ever fixed the issue with envy if we never offer someone the very thing that satisfies the depths of the soul and quiets the consumption, the desire for consumption that's within us? Have we done anything if all we do is offer comfort and contentment? See, I agree, comfort and contentment are antidotes for oppression and envy. And so long as we see that that comfort and contentment are found only in Christ, the truth is that while everyone can see the problem, without Jesus Christ, there is no way to find this comfort and contentment. Our efforts to find the community represented by the three, braid, the three braids woven together, the three cords woven together, braided together and made strong, the only way we find that and escape the futility that is isolation it's not a change of behavior. It's not a change of circumstances. It's not a, a change of situations where, where we provide some, some momentary comfort. The only way we find that is rooted in faith in Jesus Christ. 
You see, the reason we have to push deeper than just satisfying people with these superficial answers and these superficial solutions to their problem is because this is rooted deeply in God's good design of us. He created us this way. He created us to rule and subdue, to exercise authority and power, to multiply and fill the earth. He created us to enjoy abundance. He created us with the, with, with the, with the um, right, if you will, to stand in the midst of his creation and enjoy every ounce of it, except for one little tree. This is his good design. But God's good design has gone bad. I just want to show you this. I just want to show you how this works out. It's good to be dependent. It's not good to be alone. Isn't that a radically different perspective? But Genesis 2.18, as God is looking upon all that he's created, it's day six, he's looking at everything he's created, and he sees and he says, it's, it, and, and the, then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Even before sin... We were in need of others. He created us to be dependent on him and each other. It's not good to be alone. It is good and God's good design to need each other. And we walk around today, I, I don't want to burden you with my issues. Why? Are you afraid to admit that you need me? I mean, I'm afraid to admit that I need you. I, I, I wrestle hard with that. What a broken view according to what God says. It's actually right and good. It's part of his good design. The only thing that God said is not good is that the man is alone. So God says this. He makes the decision, well, I'm going to make a helper fit for him, someone to come beside him and, and help him be all that I've called him to be and fulfill all that I've commanded him to fulfill. So he puts the, actually first before he puts him to sleep, he parades all the animals in front of him, all the land animals and all the, the birds of the air. It says he puts them in front of the man and the man sits and names them all. And he gets to the last one. And I don't know how long that line is. I don't think that any of us really know. I know there's a lot of people with ideas and theories, but there's this whole long line of animals, some flying by, some crawling, some, some uh, walking. And they all go by and he names them all. Giraffe, unky, zebra. It does it. And he gets to the end of that list. And now, not only does God know that the man's alone, the man knows he's alone. God puts him to sleep, he takes the rib, and he forms the woman. And he presents the woman to the man. One of the, I think one of the most joyous passages in all the Bible, Genesis 2, 23 through 25, where the man sees the woman for the first time. This at last. At last. Like he's been waiting for you. He's just sat through this whole long list of animals. He's taken a nap. I mean, he has woke up and now in front of him at last. This bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is someone like me. Someone that I can identify with, someone that I can share with, someone that, I, someone that can be a help to me and I can be a help to them. Suddenly he has a sense of purpose, a sense of identity. Not that it wasn't already established, but it was fulfilled. It was, it was brought more full whenever he stands there looking at the woman. He's like, oh, at last, someone like me. 
See, in God's economy, it's good not to be alone. In God's design, His good design, it's right to not be alone. He introduces Adam to Eve, and Adam is ecstatic. I don't know that Eve had been alive long enough to understand why he was so ecstatic. But he's so excited. Now again, I think we can apply this to to marital relationships. In fact, I go through these things with premarital counseling, but the reality is, is that beyond the premarital, beyond the marriage relationship is the reality that we were created from the get-go, from number one, Adam. We were created with a need for one another. Before sin entered the world, our dependence upon one another is not a result of our sin. It is a result of God's good design. Is, is intrinsically woven into us. That's why when we look around, everyone sees the problem. But not everybody is going to look at the solution. See, it all goes bad when they sinned. Let me, just, let me just read this. Go back to chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. You need to see the whole thing. The man said, at la- this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of, man, out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. This is probably God's word, God speaking. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So he's the one that makes this about marriage. But I don't think we should limit the dependence that we have for each other on marriage. There's more in the Bible about that, but I just want you to see this. Verse 25, or yeah, verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, now for the longest time, I was a little kid growing up in church. My dad was a preacher up until I was about eight or nine years old. We'd have these conversations. I'd go to Sunday school and I'd hear about this verse. Man and his wife were naked and without shame. And I thought, what in the world kind of place was this? What's going on? But as I began to study the Bible and really began to dig into these things, I began to realize that that says more than just something about two people standing naked. There was an intimacy, there was a closeness. There was no division between them. There was no separation. There was no secrets, no shame. They were naked and without shame. They were completely vulnerable before each other. But look what happens immediately upon their rebellion, their sin. Chapter 3, verses 6 through 7, the serpent has come in. He's tested, he's tempted the woman. He's presented her the fruit that God has said don't eat. He's lied to her. He's deceived her and made her believe it's going to be good. And this is what happens, verse 6 of chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, right, she's just believed the serpent and quit believing God. She started believing the serpent. And that it was a delight to the eyes, she began to envy it. She began to desire it, right? She wanted it. All the abundance that she'd be given, this suddenly is the thing that she longs for. It was a delight to the eye, and that the tree was to be, to be desired to make one wise. She took its fruit and ate, and she also gave to, to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, God's already told him, if you eat of this tree, you're going to die. And they might have expected just to drop dead. Like, I don't know what they, I don't know what they expected, but, but they could have taken the bite and immediately dropped dead. But look what happens. The immediate result The eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. What's their immediate response? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves Lloyd Claws. They covered up. Their sin immediately separated them from God. It's not like it's going to happen 
in consequence or in order, it immediately separated them from God. And it immediately separated them from each other. No one had to say to them, hey, did you know you're naked now? Don't you feel a little insecure about standing standing in front of somebody naked? They immediately felt shame. And in their fallen nature, they divided from each other. They were isolated from each other by their sin. You see, the reason we can't just go and offer comfort and just tell people, oh, just be content, just be satisfied, that's great advice. No one can work it. Nobody can do it. Nobody understands. No comfort will comfort enough. No contentment, no, no offering of contentment will satisfy enough because the issue is not some superficial issue. The issue is driven deeply within us. We were ingrained. We were intrinsically woven together with a need for one another. But our sin has isolated us from each other. It separates us from God and isolates us from each other. So we need another answer. And because it's the same sin that affected us and separated us from God, it's got to be the same answer that reconnects us to each other. The same sin that separates us from God isolates us from one another, increasing the futility of life under the sun. The reason we are so dissatisfied, the reasons we are so hungry, the reason we can't be be, be content with answers of contentment and content with, with offerings of comfort is because the reality that we recognize that everything is futile under the sun. But God didn't quit. He's, he killed an animal. And he covered them himself. The shedding of blood, he, 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 he shows that how death of another will cover. And he draws this picture of this sacrifice that's going to be made. The, the answer we need, the solution to our deep and darkest problem the separation from God and the isolation from each other is Jesus Christ. See, in Christ, at the same time God reconciles us to himself, he unites us again to each other. And again, I, I can't show you this from Solomon, but you've got to see that this is God's work. It has been from the beginning, from the time that they fell into sin and were separated from him and isolated from each other. He has been working a plan for the fullness of time to unite things in himself. Ephesians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption. This is in Christ. You go back into the context, you'll see that it points to Jesus. In Jesus Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, that's sins, according to the riches of his grace. Not according to who we are, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us. I told you guys about the lavished grace last week. I won't go there again, but just see it. Lavished grace upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. This is the purpose. If you ever want to know what God was doing in Jesus Christ, here's a summation of it. Chapter 1, verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God is in the business of uniting what has been separated His plan for the fullness of time is to unite us in him and each other. It it, it has the vertical aspect of unity with him, redemption and forgiveness before him, access to him. 
but also the horizontal implication of a togetherness, a unity. The three cords braided, the community that's woven together is strong in Christ. Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. Now the chapter starts as this, this proclamation that you are saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourself so that no one can boast. It shows us that we are saved individually, but it doesn't leave us alone because immediately after demonstrating that we are saved as individuals by God, he shows us in the second half of chapter 2 that we are united together then in Christ. So he shows us how he brings us to God in salvation individually and in doing so puts us together with Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 18 through 22. We could, we could draw out different pictures from a few verses earlier, but I think this will get you the picture. This will get you the understanding. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So anyone who stands next to me in Christ has access to the same Father. We have access to God. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're no longer on the outside. You no longer have, have, have no right to this. You are fellow citizens. You legally belong here. The, the, the paperwork is done. The stamp of approval. You are a citizen and, and members with the saints of the household of God. You're not just citizens of his kingdom. You are members of his household. You are children of the king. And verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets had a great work to do, but it's all founded on Jesus. This all happens in Jesus, in whom... The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for, the God, for God by the Spirit. God unites us in Christ to himself and each other. The idea is, is that the sin that separated us from him is the same sin that isolates us from each other. There's a reason why we look around the world that we live in today and there is so much hurt and so much anguish. You've heard about it all, all, all week long. And if you didn't, it's because you didn't turn on the news and you didn't get on Facebook. For years, our nation alone has been screaming about the ways, about how horribly we treat one another. They've been identifying with the reality that we have sinned horrifically against each other. They all want a solution. And they offer up their solution. Comfort one another. Love one another. It's all about love. Just be content with what you have, some say. If we continue to disconnect our answers from Christ, the one who gives us access to the Father, we will never know the unity that God intends for us to have between each other. So what? What do you do with this? Well, first, if you are not a Christian, the only way that you can access this is by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. The promise is to his people. If you have never believed, if you have never trusted him and, and, and seen that he died in your place and for your sin, then it begins with trusting him. For those that are longtime believers, maybe new believers, believers already, I'll just say. Let me give you this advice that Paul gave the church in Ephesus who heard those words about all God did to give them access to himself and unite them together. Prioritize unity with the Spirit in Christ. 
In fact, his very first instruction after he finishes chapters 1 through 3 expressing the gospel clearly, his very first command to them is this. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. How do I do that? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In Christ, God has provided you all the unity you need. By his good grace, he's put you in and among a body of believers who hold to that tightly. Not perfectly. Don't don't hear me saying that. But who seek to, to provide opportunity for you to gather in moments like this, gather in classes, learning together, gather in times of where, where community can really be established, where life can happen together, where the, where, the, where the cords can be braided together and be made the strongest. You have every opportunity here now, and he's given it to you. And he makes you responsible to walk in it. He says, it's your responsibility to prioritize that unity. It's your responsibility to follow and live in the gift he's given you. So take advantage of it. And then let me just encourage you believers, just one more perspective. When you walk out of this room today and you seek to go help a world that recognizes its isolated from each other, that it's fighting this futile sense of loneliness. And even where they don't realize they're losing, instead of just bringing comfort and contentment, let me encourage you to bring them Christ. Because he is the only answer. The reason you have the hope you have is because of Christ. If they are to know this hope, it will be because of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I am grateful for my brothers and sisters in this room. Grateful for the love that we are able to enjoy and the tangible ways we are able to realize it. Your love in each other, your love expressed through one another, your grace and your tangible expressions of provision through the men and women sitting in this room. Would you bind us together? Strengthen us that we might stand united. Convict uh, convict us of our sin that continues to draw lines that don't let people too close. That we we might walk in repentance. Strengthen our faith that we might find our full acceptance in you so that we can stand together. Vulnerable. Enjoy the intimacy and a life without shame because of what your son has done. And if there be any here today, Father, that have never trusted you, that have never known your son as their savior, but can see all these problems, I pray that you'd wake them up to the solution, that you'd open their eyes, that their only hope is Christ. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Spirit dependent upon your power. Amen.